together this evening. But this morning, we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 18. Some of you have been doing some traveling over the holidays, and some of you with little children in the back seat. And you always hear when you're on a long trip, what, what question coming from the back seat, in addition to when are we going to stop to eat? And are we there yet? <laughs> right. Are we there yet? And parents are staring down their kids right now down the aisle. I saw that, right? Are we there yet? Well, we might be tempted to ask that same question as grown-ups this morning. As we have made our way through the holidays, we're returning to a series that we were just over halfway through. It's called The Journey of Forgiveness from Matthew 18. And we need to, we need to revive that in our thinking for today and for next Sunday. We are on a journey together. We are, as sometimes I word it, we are walking a pathway together, taking a hike together. And our journey is one of five different stops that need to happen in this order. This is an order uh, that has been laid out and prescribed by Jesus himself in Matthew 18 as he addresses Peter and disciples both then and now who are hesitant to forgive. And he took them through these, what I believe are five stops to get us to the place that no matter what has been committed against us, we can forgive. And so we're on this journey, and you might be asking, well, are we there yet? We're close. We're close. As a matter of fact, just by way of reminder, the the first stop of our journey was simply this, admit your hesitancies. This is where Peter gets into that. How many times does my brother have to sin against me, and I have to to forgive him seven times? And, And Peter, in saying seven, proves that he had been listening to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount as many times that he had heard, as he had heard it up to this point. He had heard Jesus say in teaching the Lord's Prayer, forgive others as you've been forgiven. So Peter's been putting his mind down on that, and, and he's also listening to the rabbis of that day, and based on Amos, the rabbis of that day were, would forgive a sin against them four times. And they get it from Amos where he says over and over in chapters 1 and 2 of his Old Testament prophecy, for three transgressions and for four. So Peter's like, well, they can't be right. I need to be more forgiving. And uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to double that approximately. I, Lord, how about if I use the number seven? And our Lord says, in essence, try 70 times seven, Peter. In other words, don't keep track at all. Don't be someone who keeps score when someone sins against you because we call that in Scripture a bitter person a scorekeeper. And we have to admit that we're a lot like Peter, right, when we're way over here. And that is every last one of us on both sides of this microphone are hesitant to forgive. No one had to teach us how to do that. All they had to do was sin against us, and we figured out how to not forgive them. We are all hesitant to forgive. Why? Why are we hesitant to forgive? Well, there's honestly the fear of insincerity. How do I know that person's sincere? I mean, I've I live with them, or I see them all the time. I've grown up with them, and, and uh, I might work with them. I might minister with them, and, and I just know the patterns. So how do I know they're sincere this time? I hear you. That, that one gets to me. 
Or it might be a fear of not just insincerity, but a, a fear of insecurity. It's like, man, if I, if I start forgiving people, especially certain people, that will put me out there as being soft and therefore vulnerable. And I don't want to get hurt. Again, I hear you on that one. There's also a fear that we saw, just, to, just by way of reminder, a fear of um, exposure. Because it could be that um, I, I, I was sinned against by someone else, but I was involved with sinning against them at the time, or in response. And, and if I get reconciled with them and ask their forgiveness, I'm going to have to admit that I sinned. And I'm going to have to ask forgiveness. I don't want to be exposed like there's certain fears that, that keep us here, that make us hesitant to forgive. And I love that our Lord starts right here with Peter. And he says, don't keep score. It's an issue not of keeping score. It's an, it's an issue of keeping proper posture, Peter. In other words, you have already settled in your heart and in your thinking a Christ-like posture ready to forgive someone even before someone sins against you. It's a posture that's Christ-like. It sounds like Jesus on the cross in Luke's Gospel where he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He wasn't saving them in that moment. He was showing his heart posture ready to forgive them. Many of them would come to faith in him on the day of Pentecost, no doubt. But in that moment, here Jesus and his heart have a posture to forgive those who are wronging him so deeply, even murderously. It's a Christ-like posture. It's a cultivated posture to forgive like Jesus. It's cultivated in the soil of trials. You and I cannot get good at forgiving until we've been sinned against a lot. And we exercise these muscles of grace. Oh, it's a, it's a posture that we see in Christ. Well, that was our first stop. Remember that one? Admit your hesitancy. It's like... Someone over there sinned against me, and i got to get ready to forgive them. And what do you mean? I have to start with my own heart and doing some repenting? Mm-hmm. Yes. But then it moves to that second stop that we saw on our journey, and it's this one. Remember your story. It's at this point that Jesus breaks out in Matthew chapter 18, as we'll see as we review it, with uh, the, the parable of an unworthy servant forgiven an unpayable debt. And we were blown away by the size and the shadow, and the foreboding presence, the crushing reality of our sin debt. And at the will of the king, out of compassion and mercy towards you, you were forgiven. That is your story. And then we came to our third stop right before the holidays. We're here in the thick. And this was, this was guard your heart. I mean, we, may, we might come this far on the journey and still find coming out of our heart what's coming out of the heart of the guy in the story. You'll hear in a moment. And that was ugly. The guy in the story had a mirrored reaction from the world. I mean, he was, he was all about giving pain back. He was also... He also had a skewed perspective of offenses. He thought that what he was forgiven by that king was, was little, but what, when someone owes him something, now that's big. He had a short memory of mercy, 
and he had nothing but a desire to see that person pay. And the plan was to keep them owing me. Just at some level, keep them owing me. That keeps me over them. This was the third, third stop of forgiveness. But there's a fourth stop we're going to see today. And this one's, um, this one's not, not fun. It's, it's unfun. Not that any of these have not been heavy. They have all been heavy. But it's still possible to be on this journey this long and to go through all three of those first stops, do repenting where repentance needs to happen, be every stop... Listen, every stop so far has mandated an uncomfortable humility in every one of us. But it's still possible to come this far to be on our fourth stop. We're getting real close now to the transaction of forgiveness. But we have to make one more stop. And this one's, this one's called Fear Your Lord. Because we might still have come this far in the journey and say, okay, yes, 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 but no. This stop is for us who find ourselves saying or acting like that. Fear your Lord. That's the journey that we're on. And we come to stop four today. And I'm just going to cut to the chase. We're in Matthew chapter 18. I want you to see what you will face and what I will face if I get this far to the fourth stop and I'm still digging my heels and saying, I am in a situation that is an exception to what Jesus is teaching Peter. What will you face? What will you face if that's you? Number one, you will face God's people. You will face... God's people. Uh, I, I've, I've reviewed the, thought, the stops here, but I want you to hear the words of Jesus in their entirety without interruption, bringing us to verse 31. But I want to start reading in verse 21. Follow along. You'll see the whole journey unfold with his nouns and verbs. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord... How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion. And he released him. And he forgave him the debt. But, and there's fast movement between verses 27 and 28. 
But that slave went out from that meeting and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him. And he began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, and this sounds familiar, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling. And he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. That brings us to this fourth stop this morning. Fear your Lord. Look at verse 31. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. I want you to note the beginning of that verse, verse 31. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, you can't keep things like this backstage. Keep in mind, we find this king settling accounts with his slaves, verse 23. This slave that we're looking at didn't have to look far and wide for a fellow slave who owed him something. He had owed the, he had owed the king 10,000 talents. But he found in this parade of slaves that had been reporting to the king, one of his fellow slaves who owed him 90 days, 100 days of, of, of paycheck. That's a big sin, by the way. That's a big debt. If you owe me my, if you owe three months of my um, salary, I, I'm going to come find you. It's not that it's a small offense. It's his response to that. Grabs him by the throat. Listen, when that starts happening with God's people, or in the midst of God's people, you're going to stand out. The fact is, as I put in your notes, you will stand out in a forgiven community. You will stand out in a forgiving community of folks who have come to faith in Christ and who call you brother or sister. You're going to stand out if you say, I will not forgive. I will always be the exception when people sin against me, either in a small way or in a grievous way, and you want to know how that lands with the fellow believers around you? Well, look at the verse. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved. Deeply grieved. This, this isn't just a, a passing um, scrolling on social media where someone says, oh, that's too bad. No, no, no. This, this, this Greek word is screaming out a sadness to the point where you lose sleep. You are in distress. You can't get this unseen in your mind. It consumes you what you've just seen, and you are distressing. See, why would God's people respond that way if one of them won't be forgiving? Because God's people know forgiveness themselves. They know the beast that they've been in the face of a holy God, and God in his mercy still nonetheless came to them, opened their eyes to their sin, opened their eyes to the beauty of Jesus and the, 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 the eternality of the gift of God, 
the reconciliation to become a child of God. They know that themselves. They've been blown away by that themselves. They sing these words themselves every Sunday. And when they see a brother or sister not living like that, it just stands out. It stands out to those who have known forgiveness themselves, but it also stands out to other believers who know of your forgiveness. Yeah, they have their story to tell of how you, the Lord rescued them. But they also know of your rescue. And it was significant. It might have been at the age of five or six. And God saved you from a life of bad choices early on. Or it could be, it could be a coal plucked from the fire late in life. And God rescued you. They know of their forgiveness. They know of your forgiveness. And you will stand out in a forgiven, forgiving community. If you lock your heels in it, you won't forgive. Your children will notice. They watch you point the minivan to church. Your spouse will notice. Your church will notice. Ministries will notice. People that know Ephesians 4.32 will notice where Paul writes, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as, just as, did you hear those two words? Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. The church is going to notice. It's going to stand out. While we're on this point, the unsaved are going to notice too. Because if you're an unforgiving scorekeeper, you don't isolate it to the one person that you're really mad at. It shows up in all of your relationships. Just wait for it. And the unsaved hear your invitations to church or know that you're not available on Sunday mornings because you're going to church and, and singing these songs. And I'll never forget, right after I came here, I don't know if he remembers this conversation, but David Jesse told me um, that at the... At, his place of employment, which you know, at that time, he was the only saved person in his work group. I remember you telling me that. I wrote it down. And others of you have told me that same, that same story. Yeah, if you're a bitter person, it'll show in every relationship. Just wait for it. And even the unsaved scratch their heads. Well, the fact is, you will face God's people... You will stand out in a forgiven or a forgiving community, but secondly, you will show up in believers' prayers. You understand that? If you're not a forgiver, you will show up in other believers' prayers. I mean, think of that. We want other people praying for us here at Calvary, but do we want them praying like this for us? It says in verse 31, they were deeply grieved. What did they do? What did they do? And they came and reported to their Lord, the king, all that had happened. Not just what happened on the stairs of the, of the king's hall as he was exiting. No, they're telling the king, remember the forgiveness you've extended to him just a few moments ago. In light of that, you need to hear what's happening out there on the stairs right now. The most forgiven man here today is not forgiving at all. 
They're talking to the king. We would call that today praying. You know there are people praying for you. If you were saying, I will not forgive, or I will forgive everyone and everything, uh, I, I will forgive everyone anything except, boom. And people, I guarantee, are praying for you. They're praying for you. They're burdened for you and for the one you won't forgive. This word told, they told, they reported to their Lord, they, they told the Lord. This is, uh, this is going into great detail. It's explaining, it's informing about the details with great clarity and precision. Can you, can you just hear how they're talking to the king or, or how believers talk to their king about you if you won't forgive? I'm sure if we could hear the whole conversation, they would be concerned about the inconsistency of this one that had been forgiven so much. We'd also hear them talking about their burden for the offender who did sin. And I would add, three months of paycheck is a big sin. They, but they would have a burden for this brother too or sister who has sinned so grievously that they can't be reconciled. But there would be a third concern that God people, God's people communicate to the king. And it's a concern not just for the one offended and not just for the offender, but for the king. The testimony of the king is at stake. We need to lean in on this point, brothers and sisters. Sometimes people got to be singled out. Sometimes things get personal. Remember when... The believers at Corinth wrote a letter to Paul. Paul responds with his second letter, which we call 1 Corinthians. In chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, right out of the chute of uh, 16 chapters, he says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Listen to this. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, Chloe's family that there are quarrels among you. Word gets out. I feel the weight of what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. There are some scary lines in Scripture. To my heart, this is top three. I have to answer for you. And the writer says, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. You'll stand out when you face God's people. You will if you're a non-forgiver. Could it be that the people mobilize and something happens that looks a lot like Matthew 18, 12 to 14, where the shepherd comes for you to rescue you say, well, this is rough. I told you. I told you about this stuff. As bad as this is, though, so far, it gets tongues worse with the second reality you must deal with. Number two, you will face God's rebuke as a non-forgiver. You will face God's rebuke. Look at verses 32 and 33 with me. Then summoning him, his Lord, the king, in other words, the king says, the guy on the steps that was just in here that I forgave, send him back in right now. This is moving fast in the text. 
Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way, get that, in the same way that I had mercy on you? Wow. It's kind of tense. The air is thick in the king's hall. If you dropped a needle now, you would hear it hit the floor in HD. And you can't miss three things. First of all, you can't miss the accountability. You can't miss it. Because here we are again. We were just here a few moments ago. We're in the judgment hall. It looks familiar. We've only been gone moments And now I see a frightening, beyond a shadow of the doubt, reminder, listen, of who we answer to when we don't forgive. There's a passage from Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10 that's written to believers. Understand that as I read this to you. Just write down the reference. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. It's written to believers. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Or you could translate those two words at the end of the verse, whether beneficial or useless can't miss the accountability. I mean, this thing started out uncomfortable in verse 23 and 24 and 25. It started out uncomfortable and awkward and ended well. Now we're back in, and it's starting out the same way again, one-on-one, pretty uncomfortable, and there's an accountability. The ultimate accountability of people that sin against me is the king. You can't miss the accountability, but you also can't miss, secondly, the accusation. I hope you heard that when I read it. You can't miss the accusation. Look at verse 32. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, the same king that just said, I forgive you because of compassion and mercy, the same king now says words I'm not expecting earlier in the story. You, wicked slave. That's the Greek word paneros. So what does that mean? It means you hurtful slave of mine. You calamitous slave. You vicious slave. You can translate this, you guilty slave. As a matter of fact, our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount when he's teaching us to pray uses this word. And in the Greek, those of you who like to nerd out on that, it's articular. In Matthew 6, verse 13, when Jesus uses this word, it has the article in front of it. He says, deliver us from evil. Remember that phrase? 
But with the article, the sense is, deliver us from the evil one. Your New American Standard has that translation as a marginal reference, as does your ESV. But the Christian Standard Bible, the Legacy Standard Bible, the Net Bible, all just translated outright, deliver us from the evil one. This is the same word used of Satan himself. That's heavy. That's the weight a non-forgiving person is to the heart of a forgiving king. I guess it begs the question, what do you and I want to come to God's mind when he thinks of us? He's our father. If, we're, if we've been reconciled, we're his son, we're his daughter. But who do we act like a lot? Our father in heaven or his enemy? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the very next verse, I would have kept reading, verse 11 says this little phrase, we are well known to God. At every level, he knows our hearts. He cuts through our excuses. Psalm 139, read verses 1 through 4 sometime this afternoon. He even knows a word before I say it. You can't miss the accountability. You can't miss the accusation. But thirdly, you can't miss the expectation. The expectation. You say, what does the king expect? He expects a posture that's leaning in to forgive. When we're not forgiving, our king shakes his head and says to me, and says to you, Jim, your story is supposed to pave the way. It says in the verse, remember all that debt? You see that in verse 32? The king says, do you remember the slave? All that debt that I personally forgave you because you pleaded with me. This begins and ends with the king's grace and mercy. And there's all that debt right in the middle, and it's my debt. And in the Greek, that, that phrase is emphatic in its position. It's all about that debt. The king says to me, Jim, your, your story is supposed to pave the way. He says to you, brother or sister, my child, the king says, your story of forgiveness is supposed to pave your way as a forgiver. The king expects that, but he also expects this, in essence. He not only says, your story paves the way, but he says, your brother belongs to me. Your brother doesn't belong to you. It's at this time that you've noticed a, a repeated phrase, a repeated term, title, if you will. It's now been repeated four times in our hearing. And it's the it's that, those two words, fellow servant. Have you seen it pop up? You saw it back there in verse 28. The slave went out and found one of his fellow servants. You saw it in verse 29. So his fellow servant, his fellow slave, fell to the ground. You see it in verse 31. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, and now it's the king himself using it. 
your fellow servant, your fellow slave. This is emphatic with repetition. And it's crescendoing as the king is the last one to use it in the text. The king says, not only should your story pave the way of forgiveness, but you seem to forget something. That one that sinned against you is mine, not yours. That person belongs to me. We probably need to be reminded at this point that when you make someone owe you, you place them under you in your mind, and you seek for them to suffer. It's interesting, that's treating them like they are yours. And that their ultimate sin was against you. No one will ever sin against you in this life from the least type of sin to the, to the greatest, most grievous sin. No one ever, will ever sin against you in a way that it, it will cease to be true that their ultimate sin is against God. They're not yours. You can't handle them like you own them. That gives more meaning in our thinking when our Lord said, forgive our, what, debtors. Well, there's one more thing. God says, your story paves the way. Your brother belongs to me. And your mercy is supposed to reflect mine. Look at verse 33. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, and here it is, in the same way. So what does that mean in the Greek? It, it, it means this in the Greek. It's tricky. In the same way that I had mercy on you. As a matter of fact, in the Greek, there's one word in there that we take three words to say. It's this little Greek word, day. You say, how do you translate day? It is necessary. You want to know what God's saying to not just Peter, he's saying to those gathered as Calvary Baptist Church today. Your father, your king is saying, if you ever forget that your story paves the way, if you ever forget your brother belongs to me, not you, if you ever forget that your mercy reflects the king's, if you ever forget any of those, you will not forgive. You won't even lean towards someone who has sinned against you. That's why Paul's words in Ephesians 5.2 are just like electric. Paul writes, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us in offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Or Colossians 3.13, bear with one another, forgive each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Well, fear your Lord. You're going to face God's people. You're going to face God's accusation. And thirdly, if you still won't forgive and you're God's child, you'll face God's discipline. Not judgment. You won't be judged if you're a Christian. Your sin was fully judged at the cross, but you have a loving Father who will do whatever it takes to make you holy. 
you'll face God's discipline. Look at verse 34. And, and his Lord moved with anger. A few moments ago, it says that he was moved with compassion. Remember that? Moved with compassion. Now he's moved with anger. Handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. What are we going to do with this verse? I know what this verse isn't saying. This isn't proof of purgatory, though our Catholic friends will come to this verse for that, that proof text. There's, the canon of Scripture does not support, does not even introduce the doctrine of purgatory. So you can't say the Bible's defending something it has never introduced. Okay? And I know it's not also talking about uh, that someone who's truly justified can be unjustified. God's sight. It's not teaching that. I, I just have to go to Romans 8, 28 through 30 and read those verses where Paul says, what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing's the answer. I know what it's not teaching, but I want to know what it's teaching. What is he teaching? Well, it is interesting to note that not only in the translation I'm using, but in the Greek, this is the word for torturer, not executioner. Lenski, uh, a wonderful commentator on this text, mention, mentions that there were common tortures in that day that a Gentile king may exact. One sentence could be to drag heavy chains through your days and through your months. Another common torture was near starvation. Another common torture was excessive labor and, of course, there was always the bodily tortures, you see. Okay, wh what are we talking about here in verse 34 in this text? What we're talking about here is not a judicial issue. It's a paternal issue. It's an issue of discipline from a loving father. It's what we read about in Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11. You've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? If you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. That's what we're seeing here. We're seeing here the spirit of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two. When we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. It's what even our Lord's brother, James, will write about in James chapter 2, verse 13. Judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Written to Christians. It's even... This mercy is, is, uh, is humbling because even when we are disciplined, we deserve, we deserve worse than sometimes our Father gives to us. But he will discipline us to the point where we are holy. I can't push this detail too far with the text, but I just want to go ahead and throw it out there. When this guy was forgiven his big 10,000 talent debt, and by the way, that guy was you, it's not that you don't have any debts now. 
you have a brand new debt. Your new debt is being willing to forgive others. That's it. It's interesting to consider what are some of the torturers for non-forgivers, for non-forgiving professing believers. It could be a number of things. It could be guilt. You know you should and you're not. It gnaws at you. It, it walks with you, that guilt. It could be a physical illness, starting with anxiety, dealing with your stomach and all that stuff. It could be, it could be headaches. I, I, I don't, it could be a number of illnesses. It could be consequences that are very, very visible and unpleasant. It could be a loss of financial freedom. It could be a loss of social freedom. You isolate. It could be instability in your thoughts, in your mind. It could be the shackles of fearful control, what Augustine called the clenched fist syndrome. I have in your notes two quotes by pastors who pastored for decades when they had written these words. I want you to take them home with you. Warren Wiersbe, who's with the Lord now, said this, the world's worst prison is the prison of an unforgiving heart. If we refuse to forgive others, then we are imprisoning ourselves and causing our own torment. Some of the most miserable people I have met in my ministry have been people who would not forgive others. They lived only to imagine ways to punish these people who had wronged them. And they were really only punishing themselves. MacArthur, in his book on forgiveness I told you about earlier in this series, writes, early in my pastoral ministry, and, and I want to I say that with him. I've been at this 30 years. But I would agree, you don't have to be at, be at it for but a couple weeks or months as a pastor, and you see this. Early in my pastoral ministry, I noticed an interesting fact. Nearly all the personal problems that drive people to seek pastoral counsel are related in some way to the issue of forgiveness. The typical counselee's most troublesome problems would be significantly diminished and in some cases solved completely by a right understanding of what Scripture says about forgiveness. You say, is this going to get any darker, this sermon? I'm just going to push you just a few inches further to the bottom of the pool in closing. If a person goes through life professing to be a Christian, but they leave nothing but carnage in their wake of people that have wronged them and they won't forgive and they keep score and they have baseball cards with stats on the back for every person. If that's what defines them, not something that they, they get into every once in a while, if that is def definitive of them, a characterological reference to them. They are a non-forgiver, a bitter person. What do we do with that? We, what we do with that is we have to reach the true possibility that they aren't saved. So how can you say that? Well, I, I, I'm not saying that. Romans 131 says that. Romans 131, after you get past the... the, the uh, the idolatry of Romans 1, which we'll talk a little bit about tonight, and you get into the God delivered them over to sexual freedom, then to sexual perversion, and then there's this third God gave them over to, and it's the worst case, and it's this, the worst evil in every direction in the ultimate expression. That's the first. 
And in Romans 131, he's right in the middle of that. Listen to these words. Just as they did not see the fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind, listen to this, to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips and slanderers, no doubt to those who have wronged them, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and there's one left on the list. You want to know what it is? Unmerciful. It's in the text. Cross-reference Romans 131 to the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19 and 21, and we have every reason to be nervous if we are defined as being non-forgivers. Not if we're going to struggle with forgiveness like Peter, but if this is what defines us, it's not that we've lost our salvation. If we are truly saved, we can't. The answer is there's a possibility I was never truly saved to begin with, and this offense is throwing the covers off of that. It's a heavy stop. But if we've come all this way in this journey and we're still saying, I'm not going to go to the last step, we needed to hear that we will face God's people, we'll face God's rebuke, we will face God's discipline. And one more thing. We'll face God's promise. Look at verse 35. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you. If each of you does not forgive his brother. Now he's not talking about fellow servant. He's changed his language back to us. If each of you does not forgive his or her brother or sister, not just on the surface, not just on paper, but from the heart. Peter's gotten his answer to his question. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we ready to forgive on our journey towards forgiveness? We've admitted our hesitancy. We've remembered our story. We've guarded our heart. We fear our Lord. We're right there now. We're ready to get the final answer, and that's to forgive. That's stop number five. That's the end of the series. And that's, that's next Sunday morning. We're going to answer a lot of questions about forgiveness as we do that. It was Charles Spurgeon that said, Lord, Lord, make me of a meek, forgiving spirit. May my heart be as ready to pardon offenses as it is to beat. End quote. Father, thank you for this journey this journey we're all on, and together, because there's no one in this congregation in any decade of life, in any experience of life, at any level in this life, there's no one under the sound of my voice on both sides of this desk who isn't hesitant to forgive, and so the story suddenly shines light on our own heart. It frees us to forgive, and it gives us an opportunity to project the amazing gospel and the amazing Redeemer. Thank you for being our merciful King. If there's anyone here who doesn't know you as their King, as their Savior, would you open their hearts to receive this forgiveness that's available in Jesus? 
This is the answer. If they've been living a bitter life, whether they are active in church or not, the first thing that needs to happen is the rescue of them from their sin. And for the first time, they'll be able to see those people that have sinned against them as immensely forgivable from their footing in mercy. I pray that you will work in these hearts and draw these folks to yourself. In Jesus' name.